It is good to be together in the house of the Lord. I hope you agree. Amen. Well, it is a, a new Sunday, and this morning we begin to look at a different section of Scripture. But as we do so, please pray with me as we begin. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the awesome privilege we have to worship you, to have access into your presence. While we recognize that there are millions upon millions of people in the world who are looking for ways to relate to some kind of deity, to some kind of God, and sometimes they don't even know what to call it. And yet we have full access into your presence, and it is the presence of the only true God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you will draw us to yourself this morning, that we will find a way to understand the utter privilege that is ours to come before you and to call you Father. We know that we cannot take this for granted, for it took the very blood of your Son. And not only that, but it is also the work of the Spirit in us and through us. And so, Father, help us to come to you in reverent humility, in the fear of you, knowing that your wrath has been satisfied and that we have been reconciled to you because of the death of the Lord Jesus. And as always, we ask that you will save sinners, that you will sanctify the saints, and above all, that you will exalt the name of Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, those of you who enjoy reading books, you know uh, that one of the most important sections of any book is the introduction. The introduction. Books need good introductions. Introductions are good because they set the stage, they prepare the way, they help you understand the rest of the book. Without an introduction, most books would suffer as the reader would be left clueless regarding its purpose. Well, the Bible is a book composed of two testaments, two testaments, the old and the new. And each of these testaments possesses an introduction, which is also considered to be a unit, a unit. The New Testament's introduction contains four books known as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this unit of four Gospels is meant to be a historical account of the life of our Lord Jesus. This unit of four gospels is an introduction to his life and it sets the life of Jesus within a certain context. And this unit prepares the way for everything else in the New Testament. Well, in like manner, the Old Testament also begins with what is considered to be a unit. And we know this unit as the Pentateuch, or five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 
and Deuteronomy. And just like the Gospels in the New Testament, the Pentateuch in the Old Testament is meant to set everything within a context. It prepares the way for what comes afterward. Therefore, it is quite clear that these two introductory units, namely the Gospels in the New Testament and the Pentateuch in the Old Testament, are of supreme importance for understanding all of the Bible, all of the Bible. These two units are foundational for the entire history of redemption. Beginning today and for the next several weeks, we will take a closer look at a very specific section within the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. This section is found in the second book, namely Exodus chapter 20, and you are welcome to turn there if you like. And this is known as the Ten Commandments, which is also called the moral law of God. Arguably, we are entering one of the most foundational and important accounts of all scripture. I also need to add a clarification. Through the, the years of church history, much has been said about the law of God in general, in particular, as it is described in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. However, I want to be clear that the purpose of this series of sermons is strictly to focus upon the moral law of God rather than the judicial law or the ceremonial law. Now, of course, we will touch on some aspects of Old Testament law in general, but the moral law, the Ten Commandments, will be our primary source of meditation for the duration of this series. Now, this morning, rather than going straight into the Ten Commandments, I want to spend our time answering one simple but very important question. And the question is this, why do a series on the Ten Commandments? commandments. Why? Now, in order to answer that question, I have several things for you to consider and you can follow along in your notes. This will be the, the skeleton, if you, if you would, or the supporting structure that will hold our considerations together as we dive into one of the most important set of verses in all of scripture. Now, this skeleton, this structure is made up of the following. I have four main reasons. I have two leading motives. I have one critical question. I have one central truth and I have one supreme objective. Did you get all that? Okay, we'll go through each one of those. Let me first begin with the four main reasons. We're answering this question. Why do we need to go into the 10 commandments? And I have four reasons. The first reason is this, is apologetic. My apologetic reason. Apologetics is a word that means what? Anybody know? Many of you, I know, you, you know it. Defense is to provide a defense. So I want to provide a defense as to why the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus are still very, very relevant. I believe the, the Old Testament has a tendency to fall into hard times because we modern Christians... We often, often feel too far removed 
from its context and we run the risk of losing sight of it. Therefore, it is imperative that as we begin looking at the Ten Commandments, we remember that when the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all scripture is breathed out by God, what was he thinking about? Well, he was thinking primarily of the Old Testament. The Old Testament. Paul, when he wrote those words in 2 Timothy 3.16, he was thinking of books like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Imagine that. Leviticus is inspired by God. All these are inspired by God. And therefore, all of them are profitable for a wide variety of uses, such as teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Moreover, I want you to think about this. I want this to challenge our modern conception. Consider what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love what? Your law. It is my meditation all the day. I see the need to remind you that when the psalmist said this, he did not have the New Testament. He did not have the New Testament. What was it that he loved? What was it that he was his meditation all the day? Books like Leviticus, Leviticus, and Exodus, and Numbers. This has been the cry of all true believers throughout the ages. Now, this is then my apologetic reason for teaching through the Ten Commandments. My second reason is theological. I have a theological reason. Here's what I mean. This is very important. The Christian life is undergirded by a theology which consists of the relationship between law and gospel. Law and gospel. Understanding both the distinction and the relationship between law and gospel is absolutely critical for faithful Christian living. In fact, I can tell you that some of the major problems, some of the major confusions brought upon the church have originated from a faulty theology of law and gospel. And even though I, I did address this while preaching through the book of Ephesians, though maybe not explicitly, I thought it would be appropriate and beneficial to go straight into the law itself, which is embedded in Old Testament context and work through some of these important issues regarding the relationship between law and gospel. This leads us to my third main reason for a series on the Ten Commandments, and this one is practical in nature, the practical reason, and this flows naturally out of the theological reason that I just gave you. The relationship between law and gospel ultimately is a matter that goes to the very heart of the Christian life. Therefore, it is, it is highly practical for daily living. In fact, I could easily argue that you cannot live your Christian life apart from being constantly wrestling with this issue of law and gospel. You cannot get away from it. It is very important. And this takes us back to what Christianity is all about. What is Christianity? Daily life shaped by biblical truth. Daily life shaped by biblical truth. Now, my fourth and final main reason is evangelistic, evangelistic reason. Yes, I will be preaching evangelistic sermons from the Ten Commandments. 
I understand that for some of you, this might be or might, might sound a bit counterintuitive as it would seem like preaching the gospel should come primarily from the New Testament. After all, we would agree that the New Testament is the full revelation of the grace of God in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would agree with that. However, it is our conviction as reformed Christians that even though there are two testaments in the Bible, the Bible contains one unified message. What is this message? Salvation by grace alone through faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In this regard, allow me to quote from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. In case you were thinking it was Joel Osteen. He's not the Prince of Preachers. It is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Consider these words. And I quote, the divine spirit wounds before he heals. He kills before he makes alive, end quote. Now the question is, how does the spirit do this? With the law, here's Spurgeon again, and I quote, the law is the needle which draws after it the silken thread of blessing. And you cannot get the thread into the stuff without the needle. Men do not receive the liberty wherewith Christ makes them free until, first of all, they have felt the bondage within their own spirit, driving them to cry for liberty to the great emancipator, the Lord Jesus Christ. This sense of bondage works for our salvation by leading us to cry for mercy, end quote. That is Sir Charles Spurgeon. Now, these four reasons naturally lead me into my two leading motives, my two leading motives for doing a series on the Ten Commandments. Here, I want you to take a look at into my own heart. What are the motives leading me into this study? I essentially have two leading motives. Conviction of sin for the unbeliever and growth in holiness for the believer. Conviction of sin for the unbeliever, growth in holiness for the believer. At the end of the day, my two motives for doing this study boil down to this. I want the unbeliever to see his desperate need of Christ. And I want the believer to also see his ongoing and desperate need of Christ. Therefore, even a series on the Ten Commandments is ultimately about our Lord Jesus Christ. This obviously opens the door for the next consideration. To the four main reasons I just gave you, and the two leading motives for engaging in this study, I must add one critical question. One critical question, which we will be asking throughout, though not always explicitly but it will always be in the background. What is the critical question as we engage in a study in the 10 commandments? Here it is. If we are people, if we are a people saved by the grace of God, if we are a people saved by the grace of God, does our practical obedience to the law of God matter? If we are a people saved by the grace of God, does our practical obedience to the law of God matter? 
This will be the critical question running throughout this entire series. What does obedience have to do with grace? Are they mutually exclusive? Are they enemies? Are they friends? Now, with that one critical question in mind, and since our interest is not to keep anyone guessing, but to actually teach and apply biblical truth to our lives, I will answer that one critical question right now. The answer to the critical question is, in fact, the central truth, the central truth for this entire series. As we study the Ten Commandments out of Exodus chapter 20, the central truth is as follows. Deliverance from the misery of sin, which is always accomplished by grace alone, always leads to joyful gratitude, which is expressed through obedience to God's law. I'm going to read that again. Deliverance from the misery of sin, which is accomplished by grace alone, always leads to joyful gratitude, which is expressed through obedience to God's law. Lord willing, I will expand on that central truth next week as we enter into verses 1 and 2 of Exodus chapter 20. For now, let me see if I can apply this directly to our hearts by appropriating Paul's argument, which runs through the entire book of Romans. This argument takes the form of a question. There's a, a critical question that the Apostle Paul asked in the book of Romans. Here's the question out of chapter 6, verse 1. Are we to continue in sin? that grace may abound. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, as we go through the 10 commandments or the moral law of God, I need you to ask yourself one question. This is a very important question. When tempted to sin, when I am tempted to sin, what effect does grace have on me? Does what I know about the gospel of grace lead me away from sin or right into it? Do I see grace as the power to overcome my sin or as my justification for engaging in it? I hope you realize how deeply practical those questions really are. And not only are they practical, but revealing of the heart. Whatever you do, Please do not underestimate their utter importance. Now, in the, the same line of thought, please think with me on the following words by William Gurnall, from, which, from whom I have quoted extensively in the past. The words I'm about to give you, uh, though few in number, are possibly some of the most profound and practical words I have ever read on the issue of the relationship between Christian obedience and gospel grace. Please do not mean, miss these words. And I quote, Sin seldom grows so rank or offensive anywhere as in those who water its roots with the grace of the gospel. My friends, this is a sobering, sobering statement. Let me repeat it. And I quote, Sin seldom grows so rank anywhere 
as in those who water its roots, meaning the roots of sin with the grace of the gospel End quote. Let me see if I can paraphrase Gurnall. You ready? Sin never stinks so much as when a person uses the grace of the gospel as their excuse to disregard the law of God. In light of this, I need and I must be blunt and I need to do this out of love. If you use God's grace as a justification for engaging in blatant, ongoing sin, likely you are not a Christian. You do not know Christ. There is no such thing as sin empowered by grace. One of the best ways to know the true condition of our hearts is by asking ourselves one question. To what does grace lead me? Submissive obedience or willful disobedience. Here, Gurnall again, as he continues to expound on the relationship between grace and obedience. And I quote, the flower from which the bee sucks honey, the spider draws poison. That which is a restorative to the saints grace proves an incentive to the lust of the wicked men. End quote. Here's what I think Gurnall is conveying. Some people inevitably, when they hear the word grace, Think about this. When they hear the word grace, they immediately think of freedom from sin. Others, however, they hear the word grace and they immediately think of freedom to sin. Have I mentioned the importance of prepositions? What about you? Let me ask you again. When you think of God's grace, what comes to your mind? Freedom from sin or freedom to sin? Which one are you? Interesting, isn't it? The true condition of your heart is revealed by two prepositions. To or from. Does grace free you to sin? Or does grace free you from sin? Now, this much is clear. You simply cannot understand the moral law of God or the Ten Commandments apart from a firm understanding of gospel grace. But in the same way, you cannot understand God's grace as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ apart from a firm understanding of God's moral law as revealed in the Ten Commandments. In other words, there exists a symbiotic relationship between law and gospel, obedience and grace. There is a mutuality between law and gospel that is undeniable. The confusion of which can lead to devastating effects in the Christian life. But this is the battle, isn't it? This is the battle. If we are honest, we're always battling imbalances in our Christian life. For example, in our Spanish Sunday school, a few weeks ago, I spoke of how in some circles, theology always seems to emphasize God's transcendence over and above God's imminence or closeness. When that happens, people normally end up with some kind of deism 
where God is always distant and always indifferent. Yet in other circles, theology always seems to emphasize God's imminence over and above his transcendence. When that happens, people normally end up with some kind of pantheism where God is so near that he starts looking like a creature. And he quickly turns into a powerless God of human imagination. These are dangerous theological imbalances. Well, guess what? The same can be true in this conversation regarding God's law and God's gospel. What do I mean by this? Well, in some circles, the law is emphasized to the exclusion of the gospel, and they end up with a type of legalism that is only interested in creating rules, but with no power. This is a sure way to create Pharisees. Yet in other circles, grace is emphasized to the exclusion of the law, and they end up with a type of antinomianism that sees little to no use for the law. In this case, grace becomes nothing more than a cover-up for sinful behavior. And as one person illustrated very well, this imbalance between law and gospel is like flying an airplane between two mountains in very close proximity to each other. You drift a few feet in either direction and you will certainly crush. Or to put it in Paul's seafaring language, this is how people make shipwreck of their faith. Now, because of this ever-present danger, we must keep the central truth always at the forefront of our thinking as we engage in this study. What is the central truth? Here it is again. Deliverance from the misery of sin, which is accomplished by grace alone, always leads to joyful gratitude, which is expressed through obedience to God's law. You see, the law and the gospel are like a marriage union. The husband is not the wife, and the wife is not the husband. But the two shall be inseparable in an unbreakable union. So it is with the law of the gospel. They are not the same, they are distinct, but they are inseparable, joined in an unbreakable union. Hopefully, this will become clear as we move along this series. Now, with the four main reasons in mind, the two leading motives clarified, the critical question in place, and the central truth established, let me now offer you my last point of consideration, which also belongs to the skeleton of this series, and here it is, one supreme objective. One supreme objective. That's all I have. I only have one supreme objective for going into the Ten Commandments. Even though I understand that this could sound a bit, a bit counterintuitive, the one supreme objective in doing a series on the Ten Commandments is this, greater love for God and others. Greater love for God and others. This ties, ties in very nicely with our last sermon on the book of Ephesians, doesn't it? What were Paul's last two words in that letter? Love incorruptible. And I said in that last sermon on Ephesians that love is always the pinnacle. Love is always the summit. 
The top of the Christian life is love. In fact, if I could sum up the very goal of our salvation from beginning to end in just one word, it would have to be love. There is no greater word. Love is the goal of our sanctification. It is the goal of all of life. And the Ten Commandments reveal this beyond a shadow of doubt. But let me expand on that a little bit. The greatest evidence that a heart has been captured by gospel, by the gospel of grace is a growing love for God and others expressed through joyful obedience to God's moral law. Or to put it differently, love and obedience are never mutually exclusive. Love and obedience are distinct yet inseparable. Indeed, if there is one truth of biblical teaching that is quite undeniable is the truth that love is never detached from obedience. Rather, love is always the leading cause of obedience. Obedience is, in fact, love being consistent with itself. I want to spend the remainder of our time considering that last point because I think it's likely the most important. And we cannot lose sight of it as we advance through the Ten Commandments. By far, the most dangerous dichotomy, the most dangerous separation a Christian could ever make is the separation between love and obedience. So let me be clear, that dichotomy comes from sinful desires, not from scriptural revelation. The Bible knows nothing about separating love from obedience. Let me see if I can prove this to you. First of all, it was the Apostle Paul himself who in no uncertain terms made the following statement in Romans 13, 10, love is the fulfillment of what? The law. Love is is the fulfillment of the law. Now we see here immediately that for the apostle Paul, love and law were not to be dichotomized. Rather, the apostle Paul found the most profound way to relate them to each other. The law is fulfilled by law, by love. It doesn't get any more intimate than that. But how is this the case? How can the law of God be ultimately about love? Well, the answer to that question came from the lips of our Lord Jesus himself. He's the one that made law and love inseparable. Do you remember the story in Matthew chapter 22? We find the account of a, an expert of the law that came to Jesus with a question in order to test Jesus. So the intentions of this law expert in coming to Jesus were questionable at best. But what was the question he asked Jesus? Well, here's the question. Matthew 22, verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? In other words, if you had to boil the Ten Commandments down to its core, if you had to elevate one commandment above the others, which one would you choose? Now, the answer our Lord provides is as comprehensive as it gets. Here's how Jesus answered. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend 
all the law and the prophets. This is astonishing. It is an astonishing answer. Why? Here's why. Because clearly Jesus could not answer what is arguably the most important question about the law without making direct reference to love. When asked to sum up the entire law of God, the Lord Jesus went right back to the Pentateuch and he quoted from Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five, and from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And this is very revealing, isn't it? Even in Deuteronomy and even in Leviticus, yes, Leviticus, the driving principle is love. Not only that, but the Lord Jesus brings his point home with a very definitive statement on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. In other words, we dare not ever separate law and love from each other. Even from the very beginning, love has been the center of it all. In fact, consider how the 10 commandments are divided. The first table of the law, meaning the first four commandments are all about loving God. Whereas the second table of the law, meaning the last six commandments are all about loving neighbor. Now we will see this in more detail in the coming weeks, but for now, let me point out a universal truth that logically flows out of this one fact. Please don't miss this because that is true. What I just said, every sin is in some way a breaking of one of these two tables of the law, which further means that every sin is ultimately the disruption of a relationship, either our relationship to God or others. Every sin you commit is somehow connected either to your relationship to God or others. Therefore, sin can only be thought of as that, the disruption of a relationship. In other words, sin can never be detached from our, the sphere of our relationships. Sin is always relational. You're always sinning against someone. Sin affects either our vertical relationship to God or our horizontal relationship to men. Thus, we conclude that sin is always failure to love. And what I said a moment ago is proven true. Obedience is nothing more and nothing less than love being consistent with itself. Obedience without love is cheap legalism. Love without obedience is worthless licentiousness. And both are equally destructive to the Christian life. Therefore, if there is anyone out there who has the objection that a study on the 10 commandments or the moral law of God is legalistic in nature, I would respond back and say, the only reason you think that way is because you have a deficient view of love. You have a deficient view of love. The Lord Jesus made this unmistakably clear. When he said in John chapter 14, verse 15, 
if you love me, you will keep what? My commandments. So if you're complaining mentally that we are being legalistic by going to the Ten Commandments, I would say that to you. You have a deficient view of love. This is then my supreme objective in doing a series on the Ten Commandments. My prayer is that by going through this all-important section of the book of Exodus, the Spirit of the Lord will ignite in us a greater love for him and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And my prayer for the unbeliever, my prayer is that the Lord will use this series to bring you to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners, the one who died under the wrath of God to pay the penalty for our sins and the one who rose again to break the bonds of sin and death. Jesus, my friend, is your only hope of life and forgiveness. And you must believe on him today, the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we bring this to a close? Well, let's do the only thing that we can do. And let's open our Bibles to Exodus 20. And let's finish our time together reading the Ten Commandments. But let us do so prayerfully. As we read, let us ask the Lord even now to open our eyes to the beauty of his word and to help us treasure it deep within our hearts. And above all, as we read, let us ask the Lord to show us Christ in all his glory. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God on it. You shall not do any work. You or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner which, who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is in your neighbor's. Now, 
When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So with this fresh in our minds, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the revelation of your law, the 10 commandments, where we know as the apostle Paul said that the law is beautiful, is pure, is holy. For it is a reflection of your very character. And it reveals to us the true wickedness and evil of sin. So as we go through this series and as we open your word in the book of Exodus chapter 20. We pray for the work of the spirit even now. Bring conviction to our lives. But not just conviction, but a conviction that leads us to repentance and a greater faith in our Savior, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And above all things, may his name be exalted. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. 